Judith is part of the church family here at Oak Hall Church, and, and we're turning through our Bibles now to find Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We might be scrolling through on our phones, um, however you're finding it. Do find it, Matthew chapter 27, and we're reading from verse 24 down to verse 44. Matthew 27, verse 24 to 44. Judith, thank you so much for reading to us. Verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck on him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from, from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of, the, of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants to. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. A few years ago, uh, there was a book called Crucifixion. It was written to describe um, how Roman crucifixion was not just any kind of death, that actually it was a really offensive death. And so obscene was it that the sophisticated cultures of Greece and Rome 
wouldn't even utter the word cross in public company. It was a hated word because crucifixion was so awful. It brought to mind real disgust and images that would make you sick. The book tells us how actually the, the crucifixion was designed by the state to be oppressive to ordinary people. It was always raw. It was always public. Its purpose was to terrify the masses. Crosses would line the roads, the main roads into cities. They were designed to be an awful spectacle. Only the worst of worst criminals were crucified. Murderers, traitors, and rebels were crucified. And, not, and, and always in public view. So in Roman times, the horror of the cross was inescapable. And the Romans intended it to be that way. So when you look at ancient historians, what you find is that whenever they mention crucifixion, their references are always really short. They only usually hint at the horrors rather than describing any detail. And it's as if they say, look, listen, I'm not even going to go there. You don't want to know. So people at the time didn't talk about crucifixion. They avoided the subject. It was a loathsome thing. And the people who died on crosses culturally were loathsome as well. We, we don't understand that in a Christianized culture, but for first century Roman culture, to be crucified made you utterly abhorrent on every possible level. I think our culture, you have to think Jimmy Savile. That's how people who were crucified were considered in Roman times, in Matthew's times. So that's an, it's, it's an eye-opening book that reminds us of what crucifixion really looked like in Matthew's day. So what Matthew's writing is, quite frankly, scandalous because nobody good was crucified in Matthew's day. And that makes Jesus' crucifixion one of the most compelling reasons why all that Matthew records here is totally and factually accurate. And it's not, as some people think, just a, a fairy tale that's been handed down to generation after generation, put together, fabricated. Uh, it's, it's nice. It's not. What Matthew writes here is, is loathsome. And so despised, what, it, it, so despised was crucifixion in Matthew's day that if you wanted to set up a new religion or a political movement you would have to be incomprehensibly stupid to begin it all with the cross at the very heart of it. You couldn't shoot yourself more fully in the foot than to say your saviour was crucified because that automatically makes him revolting. And yet what Matthew does here is boldly and reverently record an eyewitness account of Jesus being crucified. Matthew's saviour is hung on a cross. And he writes it because it's true. 
And culturally today, we need to hear the truth because this truth has the power to change our lives and bring us into a relationship with God. And this morning, in our culture that is full of fake news and full of a social media engine distorting the truth by giving us only what we want to hear, what Matthew does is he cuts through it all and tells us the truth about Jesus' death and the truth about us, the people that he came to save. And, you know, I hope that Matthew's honesty is refreshing in our world where truth is often hard to come by. And I hope by seeing this truth, we'll see how much we need salvation and how we need him as our king, our savior, our God, our temple, the person who makes it possible for us to meet the living God and live spiritually ourselves. And looking into this truth this morning, it's helpful to understand Matthew as, as a, a writer with a style. You see, in telling us about Jesus' death, Matthew doesn't give us gory details. Rather, in his account, he uses irony to help us see the truth. Now, irony in a story happens when the writer shows us the difference between how things seem and how things really are. I'll say that again. Irony is when a writer in a story shows us the difference between how things seem and how they really are. So as we look at the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus, it seems as though sin wins. Jesus hangs dying on a cross, and humanity has its victory over God in wanting him dead and out of our lives. But what is really going on is God is using this death at the hands of sinful men to bring us life. And that's the irony. It seems as though sin has won. But in the Son of God dying, what really happens is that he wins the victory over our sin. And that's the truth that Matthew ultimately wants us to see and believe in this passage. And the way you see those ironies, um, and therefore the truth, is by unlocking all the, uh, unlocking all the accusations and titles that were thrown at Jesus in a mocking way right throughout this passage. So the first irony that, that Matthew, um, Matthew writes about is the irony of washing your hands of Jesus. The irony of washing your hands of Jesus. As we saw last week, Jesus has already been tried in front of a, a, a kangaroo court, uh, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and brought to Pilate. And what they want is for Pilate to condemn Jesus to death. And having, having examined um, a, a Jesus, Pilate can't find him guilty of any crime, let alone one worthy of death. But the pressure on Pilate is enormous. Let me read verse 24 to 26. Um, look, at me, look with me at, at that passage in your Bible. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. Then verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So history tells us that Pilate wasn't a popular governor with the Jews and that the Roman Senate, who were his bosses at the time, were increasingly unsupportive of him in his role. So he's under pressure politically. And that's probably why he just gives in and, and, and gives Jesus to the crowd. 
In his mind, it was better that Jesus die than to face an uprising on his watch and a bad report goes back to the Senate. So he washes his hands and gives Jesus to the crowd. He decides not to take responsibility. But here's the irony. That in spite of thinking he's done enough, in spite of washing his hands to declare, Jesus's, to declare his own innocence of the process, Pilate is still responsible for it. It looks like he's pulling himself out of the situation, but actually he condemns Jesus to death. Why? Because he could have saved Jesus. But instead he caves into the personal, personal pressure to save himself. And it illustrates the fact that when it comes to Jesus, there's no such thing as a neutral response. In our British culture, we're told to avoid religion and politics around the dinner table when we eventually get to the dinner table. But just like with Pilate, the irony of trying to bow out of the God debate is that as we do so, we still reject Jesus. Why? Because washing our hands of God is ironically not being neutral, but it's a decision to keep God at arm's length, a decision to push him away. And just like Pilate, to try to take ourselves out of being responsible for, before Jesus is not being neutral, it's denying Jesus. That kind, of sound, that kind of sounds neutral response to Jesus is typical in our culture today. When you break down the HR rules at work, about religion, essentially it can be summarized with the phrase, we don't do God. In schools, we don't do God. In the NHS, we don't do God. In politics, famously a few years ago, Tony Blair said in front of the whole country, we don't do God. And yet that response, that washing our hands of God, is exactly what Pilate does here. And ironically, while it's a, a vain and, and very noble attempt to be neutral, it's actually a con conscious decision to keep God at a safe distance. And Matthew says, we can't do that. We can't be neutral. Because in trying to be neutral, we make a decision. That's the first irony. The second irony is the irony of mocking Jesus. Matthew goes on to describe how Jesus was handed over to the governor's soldiers and brutally beaten and mocked. Look at verse 27 with me. Then the governor's soldiers, it's interesting, isn't he? He just writes that in there, it's the governor's soldiers. Um, oh, but the governor has just washed his hands of Jesus, surely, proving the first point. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away. To crucify him. There are so many levels where Matthew reaches out to his readers and he wants us to engage with this scene. On one level, he wants us to see the irony of what the, 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 the soldiers say as they mock Jesus. 
Because all their taunts, all their abuse, all their mock worship actually are true about Jesus. Jesus is the king who has come. Not to rule like human kings over human empires, but to serve and suffer, to take the pain of sin, the punishment of sin upon himself for sinners like us. Like those who are beating him. Perhaps the biggest irony is that as the soldiers mock Jesus and put him down, they expose more and more and more of his kingly purpose. The more they mock him, the more they reveal his kingship. On another level, Matthew wants his original readers, who would have been Jewish, to see that Jesus is the Messiah, who's come to suffer as God's servant, the one who fulfills Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 52. Verse 13 to 15, it says there, and it's written 700 years before Jesus. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. And then on one more level, Matthew wants us to see the awfulness of sin in everybody. So like the soldiers with Jesus, the sin in each of us takes every opportunity to put down God's rule over us. Why? Because the heart of sin is the desire to break God's authority over us. That's what it is to be a sinner. So like with those soldiers, given the chance to mock God's kingship, we take it. Don't we do that every time we lie? God says don't lie, and yet when we lie, we say, I see your commands, God, and I mock you. I'm telling this lie because I want my rule, not yours. It's what we do when we sin. We mock God's kingship. Given the chance to hurt God, we take it. Each act of disobedience is against God. It's hurtful. But it's what we do when we sin. And do you know what? What's more is we enjoy mocking Jesus' kingship in that way. I don't know about you, but I'm going to boldly confess that every time I sin, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I wouldn't do it any other way or for any other reason. I enjoy sinning. Why? Because my heart says to God, my kingship, not yours. I enjoy mocking. I enjoy hurting God, just like those guards did. It's what we do when we sin. And you know, the ultimate irony when we mock God, when we hurt God, is that as we declare our rejection of God, we expose our need for God. Isn't that an irony? As those soldiers were whipping Jesus again and again and again, each blow didn't just express their distaste for him, but they expressed also on a deeper, on a more fundamental, on a 
on, on a level so basic to us all, it expressed that they needed the Savior whom they were trying to kill. There's the irony. Matthew wants us to see the irony of washing our hands of Jesus, of mocking Jesus. But he also wants us to see the irony of killing Jesus. Jesus is led to Golgotha, place of the skull, and he's nailed to a cross and hung up to die. The Jewish culture would have said, this man is a curse. He's a curse. He's cursed by God. God's hand is upon him in judgment. And as he hangs there, Matthew exposes an, another irony. Verse 38 tells us that Jesus was crucified with two rebels. On the face of it, this would have aligned him with them. It would have been saying Jesus is one of these guys. He's a liar, a fraud, a rebel. But Matthew says that proves him the Messiah, the Son of God come into the world. Why? Because in crucifying Jesus between two rebels, they unwittingly fulfill another prophecy of Isaiah's. Isaiah 53 verse 12. In that verse, the Messiah is promised that he would suffer and that God would give him a portion among the great and he would divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, Jesus' death was planned from the beginning of time. He was meant to be there between those criminals, even though on the face of it, it seemed like a triumph for his accusers. And then the insults come. Look at verse 39 to 42 with me. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So again, the thing about these taunts is that they are all truer than anyone could ever have realized. It's, it's fantastic. The truths that they are declaring at Jesus as they're mocking him. They mocked Jesus about his claim to be able to rebuild the temple after it was destroyed. And yet there they are destroying Jesus and doing exactly what he promised they would do. They were destroying him, the true temple of God, the true place where people could go to meet with God and know God personally. And his promise is that three days later he would rise again. They also mocked Jesus about being the king of Israel, the anointed leader of God's people who would care for them and lead them to faithful worship. And as Jesus dies on the cross, he's being the greatest king Israel had ever known. He was laying down his life so his children might know God personally. 
on the cross there, there was no greater demonstration of a king who has come to die for his people, a true shepherd, a true king. They mocked Jesus about being a helpless savior of the world. They were basically saying, son of God? Oh, but Jesus, let me just point out, if you, didn't, if you did have this unique relationship with God, would he have let this happen? Wouldn't God somehow magically kind of step in and prove who you say you are? You really don't look like a savior king, Jesus, up there on the cross. And here's the irony. Remember what I said irony was. It's where the writer shows us the difference between how things seem and how they really are. Well, here is that irony. These people mocking Jesus were getting very close to telling the truth. Let me read you verse 42 again. He saved others. He cannot save himself. They knew, they knew it, that he'd saved others from all sorts of things. In his miracles, he'd healed the crippled, the diseased, the blind, the demon-possessed. He'd even raised Lazarus, whom all his mockers knew personally, from the dead. And he'd forgiven sins. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, Matthew records how Jesus saved a man from years of being bedridden on a mat, but not only was he physically healed, Matthew says, he put his faith in Jesus and Jesus forgave him of his sins and brought him into a relationship with God. And the Bible says that in order for us to be saved that way, Jesus had to die on the cross to pay for our sins and to forgive us for them. Because the truth was that if Jesus had saved himself from the shame and the agony of the cross, he wouldn't have saved others. He wouldn't have been able to forgive sins. So it seemed as though he couldn't save himself. But in reality, he was choosing death. He was choosing death so that he might save us from our sins. And sitting here 2,000 years later, we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with this truth? Well, the thing about truth is that it makes us look at ourselves as we really are. Matthew's account invites us into these ironies and asks us whether our response to Jesus is reflected in any of these characters that we've seen this morning. The washing of the hands, the, the, the mocking the desire to see Jesus dead. For all of us who are Christians here this morning, Matthew invites us to look afresh at Jesus' crucifixion and to bow in humble adoration, to rejoice in the truth that he writes about here, and to thank Jesus for all that he has done to take away our sin. Matthew invites us to read about Jesus' suffering to weep and marvel that Jesus suffered humiliation at the hands of people like us so that we might be forgiven. And I hope that gives us the opportunity to take stock of how we are doing spiritually and to ask the simple question humbly whether or not we are living lives that truly reflect 
our gratefulness for his great sacrifice. And if we're not Christians here this morning, it might be that like Pilate, we're constantly washing our hands of Jesus, keeping, at, keeping Jesus at a distance, not wanting to do God, not wanting to genuinely commit to following him. It might be that we would prefer to mock Jesus, like the soldiers and the chief priests. But Matthew writes here an invitation to follow Jesus. Because all the, mocking, all the mocking ironically tells us the truth about Jesus. They mock Jesus as king. Well, he is king. He's king of heaven. They mocked him as a helpless savior, but he is savior who stayed on the cross willingly to take away our sin. They mocked Jesus' Jesus' claim to be the true temple, and yet as he hangs on the cross under judgment and facing death, he is the true temple of God who brings us into relationship with God. He is the place where we can know God, and that's a truth we need in our culture. There is no other place in this world where we can meet personally with the living God and know his love for us other than Jesus Christ. And the invitation that Matthew says is, look at him hanging on the cross. Understand all our attempts to kill him and mock him and abuse him and discredit him are simply exposing our need for him and bow down and say, Jesus Christ, son of the living God, I need you to be my savior. I need you to be my God. I need you to be the suffering king who lays down his life for me because I cannot deal with my own sin myself. That's Matthew's invitation this morning. He invites us to believe that truth and to believe in this Savior. Not just to believe that Jesus was real, but to believe that Jesus died so that our sin, your sin, my sin, might be personally forgiven. Matthew invites us to pray. And prayer is simply talking to God. If you've not done that before, or if you've not done it seriously, then Matthew invites that response this morning to talk to God and to tell him, I need Jesus. We need Jesus to save us from our sin so that we might know God personally. I wonder if you'd like to do that for the first time this morning. If if you're here this morning, then do uh, talk to God now. Just bow your head and pray. Or come uh, to to the front at the end of service, and we can arrange a time to go for a walk and talk together. If you're watching this online, and Matthew's truth has struck you between the eyes as as it hit me between the eyes many years ago. Well, again, take the time to talk to God. Talk to Jesus. Ask him to be your savior. And if you like, send us an email into the office because we'd love to talk about him more. We'd love to get to know you and help you understand more and more 
about the great truth that Matthew writes as he tells us about Jesus's trial and execution. Let's pray together now. Dear Father God, we, we look at this passage that tells us so honestly and openly and truthfully about our crucified Lord. Father, we confess that so often we have washed our hands of you. So often we have, want, we have not wanted to engage with you because of the cost And yet, Lord, we declare this morning how much we need you. Father, I pray that each of us would be able to look at our hearts and look at this story once more and and bow before the King who suffers, bow before the Savior who comes, not to take himself off the cross, but to keep himself on it so that sinners like us might live. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the the sacrifice that he paid, for the suffering that he endured, that we might go free. We praise you this morning. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.